0: Welcome back to Access and Opportunity, a podcast from Morgan Stanley connecting capital and communities. I'm Carla Harris, and we're excited to continue exploring the extraordinary commercial opportunity investors often overlook, investing in women and multiculturally-led businesses. But because we are currently living in unprecedented times with COVID-19, this is not your traditional episode of Access and Opportunity. As we all try to manage this global pandemic, we're checking in with some of our favorite guests from previous seasons. We wanna understand how they've adjusted their schedules, their businesses, their outlook, and their investing style. Together, with you, we wanna write a new playbook and emerge from this experience stronger than ever. Today, we welcome back Hope Knight, Hope is the president and CEO of the Greater Jamaica Development Corporation and also a member of the New York City Planning Commission. As someone who has spent years championing for community revitalizations and economic development, Hope shares the positive shifts that companies can experience during these times, as well as the importance of maintaining a work-life balance. Thank you once again for being with us. You were our very first podcast guest as we started Access and Opportunity a couple of years ago.
1: Thank you, Carla. It's terrific to be with you, albeit under these circumstances, but uh, love spending time and talking to you.
0: Well, thank you. You are right in the epicenter of what's going on, especially as someone who has been so successful with public and private partnerships and frankly have been responsible for a lot of the development that we have seen in the borough of Queens over the last couple of years. I, I tease you when we get a chance to get together that you are the queen of Queens <laughs> and many of the cranes that we all have seen that have been in Jamaica, Queens for the last couple of years has been directly attributable to some of the the great work that GJDC has done. And I know because you are in close proximity to us that you have been really ahead of the curve, if you will, in understanding how this was going to impact New York. So just tell us, at the the moment you knew that the mayor and the governor had declared New York was heading towards a state of emergency, what was your initial thought?
1: Well, I think that By the end of February, the beginning of March, it became clear that um, I was going to have to move the office to telecommuting and was going to have to start shutting down some of our operations. And so, you know, I spent that first week of March figuring out how to get all of our activities sort of on a platform so that we could work at home. And then started to think about how I was going to manage, you know, sort of my duties as a landlord from a property management perspective, as well as uh, we also operate a food hall. So I have approximately 17 food vendors that sell food to go, and we also have seating arrangements so people can sit and eat their food if they want to in that location. And so I had to really think about how could I rejigger this so that, first of all, I could close down some of these operations in an orderly way. Also thinking about the fact that each of these businesses generally are small businesses that revolve around a family. So wanted to make sure that they were able to operate as long as they could, while trying to keep health and safety in mind. And so it was a fast paced operation of trying to bring all of that together.
0: Yeah, you talked about uh, quickly thinking about how to move your operations online. Were you already technologically ready or in those early days in March, did you have to you know, consult with specialists, technologists to try to figure out how to get that done in the shortest period of time?
1: So we had the tools, but I did have to talk to specialists to figure out how to deploy very quickly the tools that we had in place to do that all from um, remote locations.
0: And did you start messaging to some of your tenants and to some of the restaurateurs that they ought to get ready for this? Because the the beginning of March, as you just pointed out, was frankly earlier than many large corporations that are headquartered in New York had started to make those decisions.
1: So started messaging to staff and then started having staff canvas tenants to figure out what they were thinking about doing. Because that gave us a sense of what we needed to do to be supportive of their operations.
0: Ah, ah. And what has been the biggest aha for you as an operator and as a leader?
1: I think, you know, being in the epicenter is very tough because, you know, there's been a lot of human loss. And so it has been difficult to try to, you know, manage to keep your head up because, you know, you're grieving the loss, but you have staff and others looking for leadership and trying to be able to provide that. And I think, you know, one of the biggest difficulties is the uncertainty Mm -hmm. that we face, because um, I think, you know, we're getting closer to a point where uh, we will begin to see some industries come back and open up. But in the early days, we just had no sense of what this timing was going to be. And I think that was really tough, because if you know What the end game is, you can work to get to that. But Mm -hmm. if you're kind of spinning in animation, that's really tough to be a leader and to, you know, kind of communicate that to the troops.
0: Yes. And, And what did you use to motivate your team, many of which had never worked in such a situation before, as you say, with the uncertainty, with the human loss? How did you keep people engaged as sort of a leadership playbook for our listeners?
1: Yeah. So I think, you know, we had to set up, you know, regular check-ins. And I think in addition to being a landlord and um, being involved in property management, we also have a small business services unit Uh where we provide support to small small businesses. So we were really in execution mode around how do we help these small businesses? First of all, kind of get to a place where, you know, they're shut down, have them think about, how they can potentially pivot, and you know, thinking about opening up on the other side. Mm-hmm. And so, as a support function and a lender to small businesses, you know, the first thing we did was go out to our borrowers and say, "Listen, if you need six months of forbearance, we will accommodate that. Just send us a note. Let us know that you are in need of that and we will facilitate. So that was sort of one of the first things we did with our borrowers. And then we started to assemble resources. As you know, at all levels of government, city, state, federal, have put it, been putting out all sorts of programs to support small businesses. And we were basically acting as ombudsmen to really funnel businesses to the right level of support so that I think businesses were inundated with the resources. And so really helping them focus on what was available to them was very important.
0: Oh, wow. So you were actually in many ways doing that before a lot of the, the federal programs commenced. Absolutely. What was some of the advice that you were giving some of these small businesses for some of our emerging businesses that will be listening to this? This would be key playbook
1: points for them. So, you know, the big headline was, you know, try to conserve your cash, mm-hmm. keep your cash, you know, talk to your landlords, talk to your vendors, talk to your suppliers, but you know, you're going to need cash coming out of this on the other side too. So to the extent that you can do that, it'll be easier for you to get started again.
0: Mm -hmm. And what did you say to them about how to conserve cash? Like, what should you think about pulling back on first? I've heard uh, many other investors uh, say to their portfolio companies, as we've had these discussions, try to make people last. People are most expensive. But if you can hold on to folks, do that last in terms of cutting back on cash. So what advice were you giving them in terms of what to cut?
1: I think it's similar. And, and, you know, not from a cutting perspective, but just from a holding perspective, you know, Mm -hmm. hold your rent, (laughs) you know, hold your bills from your supplier because you just need more information with respect to how long this is going to last before you start to, you know, spend cash that you may not be able to recover going forward.
0: Yeah. And and speaking of cash, research says that most small businesses have on average 27 days of cash and reserves. So if you're talking about this lasting well past 27 days, how do you think this plays out in Jamaica and other urban areas?
1: Well, I I think it's tough because, you know, you talk about 27 days and the kind of small businesses that I deal with probably have cash, you know, just enough for about two weeks. So 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 half. Mm -hmm. Yeah. that amount. And so, you know, we're way past 14 days, so that's really tough. The good news is that, you know, as we talked about the last time we got together, there is a lot of construction happening in Jamaica. And so that activity is likely to start in a couple of weeks. And that activity will begin to fuel the consumers that would frequent Mm. some of these small Mm -hmm. businesses at the street level. So I'm very encouraged that that, you know, this level of investment by way of construction is happening and will resume in our community.
0: What industries do you think will have a hard time rebounding or might have to think, as you put it, uh, about pivoting or, as I like to say, in some cases, it's not a pivot, it's an evolution. What are you now going to be?
1: it's soft goods. You know, some of the little, you know, boutiques that sell, you know, men's, women's, children's clothing, you know, we're all at home. I'm sure you're not cycling through your wardrobe like you usually do. For sure not. None of us are. And so, you know, you're going to have stores that have inventory. They're going to have a very difficult time getting rid of. And then going forward, I don't know how many people are going to be so willing to go in a store and try on clothes Ah, on a Ford basis.
0: Good point. So you need to think about how you might do that differently. Right. And and what inventory is going to look like. I could just think about all the stores that uh, that ordered winter inventory and we didn't really have a winter here in the northeast in the same way. So they have to get rid of that. And then you can't forecast what people are going to use for the spring and the summer.
1: That's right. That's wow.
0: That, that's very fair. Very fair. Now, as a landlord, you know, what do you think the state of urban development and revitalization will be on the other side of this?
1: So, so the good news is that, like I said, these projects are in place and they will come out on the other side. You know, some of them will be done in early 2021 and the middle okay. of 2021. And so hopefully we will be mostly past this. You know, I think the challenge is going to be with state and city governments budgets being greatly reduced because we are in this situation. Is there going to be the same level of capital available to invest in, you know, affordable housing projects and other Mm -hmm. large infrastructure projects? I think that is really what I worry about on the other side.
0: So do you think coronavirus has the power uh, to basically rewrite the future of urban development? Or do you think there is still enough private capital around that this presents a very interesting investment opportunity for those who are the owners of private capital?
1: You know, I think that it's can present an opportunity for private capital, except that because of the uncertainty of how long this may potentially last, I think that private capital might sit on the sidelines. I do think that, you know, we're probably talking about 18 to 24 months of difficulty, but that's not a long time because I remember 08 and I remember sitting around in 13 thinking, when is this going to (laughs) end?
0: Wow, in 13,
1: Yes. Wow.
0: It was it was four or five years before you really started to see recovery as we would define it. That's right. Wow. And you think this might be a little bit faster, more like two years or three years. I think I think it's two years. I do. Wow. That that is significant. I have a couple of questions for you as a leader. How has working from home been different for you in terms of your execution and what tips do you have for other leaders as to how you've managed through my my own leadership uh talked about being mindful of not letting the personal and the the professional merge too much because then it never ends which can in fact burn you out faster so what are some of the things that you've done
1: so this so that is exactly um one of the things i had to come to terms with the first because i thought wow I've gained all of this commuting time back where I can work. And so, you know, I would find myself in front of the computer at 8 p.m. and on the phone and thinking, wait a minute, I need to like cut this off. This is it's crazy. We, we need to be done with this, particularly in the early days when there was so much to do. So definitely not letting the bleed happen into your personal life. I also started arranging calls and meetings at sort of what people define as off times. When I I remember March 18th, we had set up a all staff call at about 11 o'clock and we were all trying to call in at the same time. And I know I had to dial four or five times before I could get in. And so the phone call didn't start until 15 minutes after what's supposed to because people couldn't get in. So we've started to um, set up calls 10 minutes after the hour, ah. and that seems to have worked really well. And um, I've started to do that externally, and people think it's ever a little weird, but I think it's more efficient.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and you get right to the point. That's what I have found, that you're, you're much more thoughtful about getting right to the agenda and executing through the agenda. One last leadership question. What is the thing you think leaders will have to do differently on the other side, I'll give you my own my own thought around that is that I think you'll have to be more thoughtful about how you engage your people uh, because it's one thing to engage somebody when you're all under the same roof. But one of the things that's been heavy on my mind is how do you create culture when we're not in the same place? Culture is almost informally defined because of how we interact with each other under the same roof. But when we're not under the same roof, How does that work? So that's my own thought. So what's your thought about what leaders will have to do differently on the other side of this?
1: You know, I think you're going to have to figure out how to engage on a personal level, you know, on the phone and through some of these tools. Because, you know, I definitely used to spend, you know, 5% of my week managing by walking around. Mm Because you'll see see what's going on when you walk around the halls of your office. And uh, I can't do that. So I have to figure out a substitute in um, doing that and engaging people much more personally through some of these platforms.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, what do you see as the immediate call to action for entrepreneurs uh, in underrepresented communities, and how do they navigate, you know, all of the resources that will, I think, continue uh, to be thrown at them?
1: Yeah, I think they've got to be, you know, very discriminating about. defining which resources are going to support them appropriately. You know, there's a lot of discussion um, these days about the Paycheck Protection Program and how that, the first round, didn't necessarily um, support the smaller entrepreneurs. And um, we're going through this process as we speak, Mm -hmm. um, trying to help the entrepreneurs that can access the program. To be able to, because at least that's direct cash that you can support staff with through June 30th. You know, if you get to June 30th, you probably will be able to open, and you know, you won't have to think about how to uh, provide funding for staff till after that point.
0: Ah, okay, okay. So you you think it's it's really about making sure that you have a level of readiness all the time. So as these things come out and are made available to you, you're in a position to take advantage of them.
1: Yes, because these kinds of tools are unprecedented. We have never seen forgivable loans to support, you know, business enterprise.
0: So I have a question before we we end this. And thank you again for your time today. I've had one leader tell me that he believes that uh, a lot of what we will do going forward will look like what we used to do. So his statement was, we'll go back to 80% of what we were doing and 20% uh, will be completely different. Is that your view or do you think differently?
1: I think differently. I think we are forever changed because of this. Yes. I think that when you look at this telecommuting and how, if you set up correctly, how effective it can be. I think it's going to be hard to get people back into the office five days a week for Mm -hmm. a 40 or 50 hour week on a forward basis. Yes.
0: Well, and when you think about the level of productivity that people are having from home today and if we can get to some kind of equity in society around access to technology and the ability to use technology, um, one could argue, I, I can't wait to see what the studies say about people's level of productivity, not the first two or three weeks that they were at home, but the succeeding, you know, week five through 10. Um, and if the numbers are higher, there's an argument to say that maybe you have to be in the office two to three days a week to create that community and the culture we were talking right. about, and, and right. maybe not the other the day four and five. You think that's the way we will end up?
1: absolutely think that's the way we'll end up.
0: Yeah. And do you think that will be um, employer driven or employee driven?
1: Well, you know, I have a few millennials that work for me and they've been inching for this for a long time. <laughs> <And> so...
0: <laughs> well, that's where I was going because employers can say all day long and you got to come in four to five days a week. But if you can't find anybody to do that, then that's, that's right. employee
1: driven. That's right. I, I think it's going to be organic. I really yeah. do. Yeah. Okay. Excellent.
0: Excellent. Well, Hope, this has been outstanding and amazing. And you have provided so many playbook points for our entrepreneurs, for people like you who are engaged in public private partnerships or our landlords and other business owners and how you've handled this and managed this. So I wish you nothing but continuous success as we navigate and weave through COVID-19.
1: Thank you, Carla. And I look forward to talking to you about what happens on the other side.
0: Yes. We will take that up for sure and book it now. Thank you for joining us for this special COVID-19 series of Access and Opportunity. Over the past four episodes, you've heard our guests define the challenges of navigating this crisis from the perspective of entrepreneurs, investors, and developers. We hope that the playbook points they have shared have helped you think about how to not only support one another, but to be assertive in finding opportunities in the midst of chaos. Stay tuned for the next season of Access and Opportunity, which will feature the perspectives of women breaking barriers in the VC landscape.